to John chapter 15, the passage that was read for us a few moments ago. So you've been journeying with us this summer, you know we've been basically just taking a slow summer stroll through this incredible chapter that lays before us the essence of the Christian life. It boils everything down to the basics. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to, to live the Christian life? And as we've been walking through John 15 together, we've been saying over and over and over again that the goal of the Christian, or Christianity isn't about you and I trying to rally the resources in our lives to live for Christ. That Christianity isn't about you and I trying to live for Jesus. Christianity is about you and I learning how to live in Christ, to be united in relationship with him that is real, that is substantial, that is life-changing. And so what we are doing as we journey through this world together is we are learning and cultivating what it means to live in Christ. What does it mean to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus? What does it mean to engage in a rich and vibrant relationship where we are abiding in him and he is abiding in us and we are inhabiting him and he is inhabiting us by his Holy Spirit? And so that's what we've been studying together over the past several weeks, just taking the slow stroll through this incredible passage and and we come now today to verses around 12 through 15 is where we're going to be camping out this afternoon. But before we do that, let me ask, how many of you, who can tell me what these are? Can anybody recognize these from a distance? What are these? Esteban, you should know this, bud. Close. Limes have been guessed all day long, but these are not limes. Not a Chinese lantern. It is a vegetable or a fruit, I guess, technically. This is a tomatillo. Who said that? Carissa, Andy, These, this is a tomatillo. A tomatillo is a, basically a distant relative of a tomato. And uh, I, I bring them in here today because if you were one who just loved tomatillo salsa, which I do, and I love salsa made out of these little guys, and if you had a garden and you were planting these in your garden and you wanted them to grow and get you an, your own batch of tomatillos, you, you got to know that these things cannot grow in isolation, meaning you can't plant one stalk and expect to get tomatillos. In order for tomatillos to grow, you have to plant them in clusters. And as you plant them in clusters, they're able to cross-pollinate. And as they are cross-pollinating, that's what allows them to bloom and to blossom. And that's what creates these tomatillos. And the Christian life is a lot like that. You know, if you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, if you want to grow as a Christian, you can't grow in isolation. You can't be planted by yourself. The Christian life is about you growing in clusters of community called churches. This is why we have churches. This is why we have the Hallows Church here in the city of Seattle is because we want to grow in Christ. And we recognize that we cannot grow in Christ in isolation. So God plants us in clusters. He puts us in communities called churches. And churches are all over the world where people are rallying around the realities of Jesus and are pressing into the realities of the gospel, growing in what it means to believe that Jesus loved them and died for them and rose from the grave for them. And that's exactly what we're doing here today. We are planting our lives in a cluster of community, in a family of faith, so that we might grow in Christ. And that's important for us to realize because a passage like John 15 that talks about abiding in Christ, it's a famous passage, especially when you look at verse 5 of John chapter 15. Jesus says, you know, if you abide in me and I in you. Whoever abides in me, he it is that's going to bear much fruit. And sometimes this whole language of abiding in Christ or inhabiting Christ, that language can be kind of twisted in a way that Jesus did not intend for it to be twisted. Meaning we can sometimes talk about abiding in Christ and, 
dive into a form of Christianity that is hyper-individualistic. A form of Christianity that says it's all about me abiding in Christ. It's all about me and my relationship with Jesus. But as you run through John chapter 15, you're going to kind of see his thought process cascading down so that he comes to verse 12 and he reminds us that abiding in Christ isn't something you necessarily do as an individual. Abiding in Christ is something we do together. Journeying with Jesus is something we do together. And as we walk, as we grow in Christ together, we begin to blossom fruit. And we begin to see the fruit of gospel character being forged in our lives. So that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and long-suffering and self-control begin to mark us. How do you know if you're growing in that direction, if you're not surrounded by people who can tell? How do you know if you're becoming a more patient person in isolation? How do you know if you're becoming a more loving person if you're not in relationships with people that might rub you the wrong way? Well, Jesus plants us in communities, clusters of communities called churches, and together we grow in Christ. Together we nurture the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is swelling up within us as we abide in him, and he abides in us. And so you catch this when you jump into verse 12 of John chapter 15. As Jesus kind of moves towards talking about the relationships we share with each other. And he says in verse 12, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 15, Jesus lays out the imagery of the vine and the branches and fruit bearing. Then when he gets to verse 9, that's when he starts explaining that image. He starts explaining that picture to us. And he's continuing to explain what that picture means when he gets down to verse 12. And he's talking about this command that he's given to us that we would love each other, that this is what it means to be a fruitful person and a fruitful people, that we would be a cluster, a community of Christ followers who love each other really, really well. Now, I don't know how this command hits you to know that Jesus commands you to love each other. It can sometimes knock me off balance because, quite honestly, it's hard to love each other. Loving one another is very difficult, and one of the reasons why it's so difficult is because it's a very particular kind of love. I would encourage you to circle that word one or circle the word each, whichever shows up in your translation. He's saying love one another. Love each other. That's a particular kind of love, and if you're like me, you find it a whole lot easier to love people in general. You find it a whole lot easier to love people as an abstraction. But Jesus doesn't allow us to love in a generalized kind of way. He says, I want you to love in a particular kind of way. I want the love that you have for people to be embedded in earth, embedded in flesh and blood, embedded in tangible context so that you are loving particular people with names and with faces. And sometimes you don't get to choose the people that you are called to love. Especially as you follow Jesus, you don't get to choose who else is following Jesus. When you step into a family of faith like this, you don't get to choose who else is a part of that community. And yet you receive the command, love each other, this particular kind of love. I love what G.P. Lewis said in that quote you read a moment ago, where he says, It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exacerbating, depraved, and otherwise unattractive. Loving everyone in general may be an excuse for loving no one in particular. Just loving everyone in general may be just an excuse. It's a way for you perhaps to hide from actually doing the hard work of loving a particular person. Yet this is what Jesus calls us to. His command involves you and I loving 
with a particular kind of love, particular people. And this was important because the guys that Jesus was giving this command to in John chapter 15, this was a group of guys who did not necessarily pick each other. They found themselves in relationship with Jesus at the same time and in the same space following Jesus together. But outside of Jesus, they would not have chosen to hang out with one another. I'll give you two examples. One, one guy that was listening to Jesus say these words was named Matthew. And Matthew, when we first meet him in the Gospels, he is a tax collector. Now, in the first century, tax collectors were, were unfortunate. They were Jewish people who were employed by the Roman government. And so a lot of Jewish people hated tax collectors because they were viewed as traitors to their own people. Most Jews wanted the Romans out of Israel. They did not want to be occupied by the Roman government. And so for them to be in their land and then to see members of their own race employed by their oppressors, employed by the Roman government, that created a big prejudice in the hearts of many, many Jewish people. One group in particular was known as the Zealots. Now, Zealots, if they were alive today in America, they'd be the equivalent of a white supremacist or some staunch nationalist. And this, these Zealots tried to uh, overthrow Rome through insurrection. They, they committed crimes. They committed murder. They did many things to try to upset the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that existed in that day. They, they were a group of staunchly Jewish nationalists. And there was a guy in Jesus' group a guy named Simon, and the only thing we know about Simon is that he was a zealot, that before he met Jesus, he was like that. And so that means that Simon and Matthew were mortal enemies, that a deep hatred existed most likely in their hearts for one another. And yet here they are standing before Jesus, listening to him to say, look, I'm creating a new kind of humanity. I'm creating a new people, and you are going to love each other. Now, Matthew and Simon would have never chosen to hang out. Matthew and Simon would have never chosen to be in the same community. But what brought them together in this moment was their shared allegiance with Jesus. This is one of the things that makes the church of Jesus in the world, it should make it one of the most miraculous and remarkable communities in all the world. Because we find in the church people who might not have anything in common outside of their shared allegiance to Jesus outside of their relationship with Christ. And yet Jesus brings them together and he says, I want you to love each other. And in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he actually makes the statement that the world's going to know that you are my disciples in how you love each other. In the particular you love that you have for one another, that's how the world is going to know you belong to me. And that's how the world's going to know that I belong to you, that you are mine and I am yours through the love that you show each other. It's a particular kind of love. A love for people that we might not like outside of Christ. A love for people that we might not interact with if not for Jesus' work of love and if not for his work of grace in our lives. There's a guy by the name of D.A. Carson who writes about this dynamic really well. I don't want to share his words to you. He said, well, he said what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collection, but because they have been saved by Jesus. And they owe Jesus a common, here it is, a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have been loved by Jesus, they commit themselves to doing whatever he says. And he commands them to love one another. He commands them to love each other. So the kind of love that Jesus is calling for here is a particular love. 
But not only is it a particular love, when you think a little more about it, you begin to see how it's a practical kind of love. It's a practical kind of love when you remember where this conversation started. In John chapter 13, Jesus takes his disciples up into the upper room and he has a moment with them where he sits them down and he walks over and he grabs a towel and he drapes it around his wrist and he picks up a basin of water and he, much to the surprise of all the disciples, he went one by one to each one of the guys in that room and he knelt down beside them and he began to wash their feet. And then after washing their feet, serving them in this lowly way, serving them in this humble way, he would make this statement to them. He says in John 13, 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. He's saying this example of practical service, this example of practical love is how you are to love one another. It's how you are to love each other. Now, this is an important dynamic to consider because we don't want, when it comes to loving another person, we don't want our thought process to go in this direction where we say, well, I need to feel a certain way about the other if I'm going to love them. We don't want to locate our love for another human being and for another follower of Jesus. We don't want to locate our love in the arena of the emotions so that we say, okay, until I feel a certain way about him or I feel a certain way about her, that's when I'll love, no? The kind of love that Jesus is calling for and the example he sets for us in John 17 is one that says, I'm going to act a certain way towards the other regardless of how I feel. That love, according to the gospel, is action. Love, according to the gospel, is practical service. Love, according to the gospel, is devotion towards the welfare of those around you. And a lot of times that devotion is shown, that service is given despite how you feel. Because love in the kingdom of God cannot be located in something as fickle as your emotional state. Feelings are fickle. Feelings change. Feelings are like the weather. So he says, look, I want you to love one another in a practical way. Locate your love for each other in the actions you can do. And so you want to stoop low to serve. You want to stoop low to bless. You want to stoop low to help other people flourish in this life. This is what Jesus is commanding in this, in this passage. So the love he's talking about here is a particular love. It's a practical love. And here's the good news. This type of love is a, it's actually possible. It is possible for you to love particular people. It is possible for you to love particular people in practical ways. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, this is my command that you love each other as I have loved you. It's possible for you to love in this way because this is the way you've been loved by Jesus. And when Jesus is pouring his love into your life, when he's pouring his love into your heart, you are going to find it possible to obey this command. So if you're someone who's wondering, I wonder how I can learn to love like this, to learn how to love people who are different from me, who might not think like me, who have a different personality than mine, or they may vote differently than me, or whatever the case may be, I would give you the same advice I would give to someone who might, have, might be interested in taking up jogging. If someone were to come up to me and say, Andrew, I want to take up jogging and let that be my hobby from here on out. How do I get started? What, what do I do? I would look at that person and say, well, I want you to start slow, and then I want you to get slower, right? 
For the first week of jogging, all you want to do is keep moving. I don't care how slow you're moving, just keep moving. But that's not how a lot of people start jogging. A lot of people are enthusiastic, and they kind of outpunt their coverage when they think about what they can do physically. And so they'll go by the slickest shoes, by the slickest outfit. They'll get their iPod ready and their earbuds, and they'll step outside, and they'll go for it. And they'll run full tilt for three blocks. Only after about three blocks, all of a sudden, there's not enough oxygen coming into their lungs, and their stomachs are cramping over, their muscles are aching, their lungs are burning, and So they have to hitchhike back home, and when they get back home, they walk into their house, and they jump on the couch, and they say, I'm never doing that again, and they just bell out. They'll say it's just too hard. Now, that type of running is what we might call anaerobic exercise. It's anaerobic exercise, meaning it is done without oxygen, that you you need a lot more oxygen that's actually filling up your lungs in that moment. Well, there's a lot of people who try to love that way. There's a lot of people who try to love that way and that they hear Jesus' command to love each other and they go full tilt. They jump hedge on into trying to love everyone around them, trying to practically serve everyone around them, trying to love every particular person that they come in contact with and they do it with great fervor. They do it with great sacrifice. They give 110%, but they perhaps engage that moment without the resources needed to continue or the resources needed to sustain that pace for the long haul. And so before long, you have Christians just hunched over in pain because it's hard to love people particularly. It's hard to love people practically. And they're wondering, well, what's wrong with me? Why can't I sustain this? And so they find themselves gasping in pain and cramped up saying, I'm never going to do that again. But love, like running, shouldn't be anaerobic. It needs to be aerobic, meaning our output needs to be matched by our input. That what we're taking in needs to match what we're divvying out. And running requires oxygen. You can't run without it unless you learn to breathe. Well, loving each other requires learning to be loved, right? It requires letting Jesus love you. And if you're not breathing in his love for you, if you're not inhaling the oxygen of his grace, the oxygen of his service, the oxygen of his love, you are not going to sustain loving other people. I don't care how enthusiastic about it you are. I don't care how passionate about people you are. If you're not inhaling the love of Jesus, you will not sustain love for particular people in practical ways over the long haul. And so your love then needs to be aerobic. Your love then needs to inhale the love that Jesus has for you. And this is where Jesus anchors this command. He says, love each other as I have loved you. And then he goes on in verse 13, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. He reminds us of how he loves us. And he's saying, let this sink in. Let this grip you. Let this compel you. Let this drive you to carrying out my command that you would love one another. Another way of saying this is that Jesus' commands always come to us with the grace needed for follow-through. When you read a command in the Bible, such as love one another, that doesn't mean you need to pick yourselves up by your bootstraps and go full tilt in trying to obey that command. What that command is designed to do is to cause your heart to sing, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. 
singing that song in your heart over and over and over again, believing that with the commands of Christ comes the grace of Christ for follow-through. So if you're called to love, let yourself be loved. Recognize that Jesus loves you particularly. He loves you, not in a generic sense, but in a particular, personal sense. He knows your name. He knows your story. He knows everything about you, and he loves you particularly. But Jesus didn't just love you in a particular way. He loved you in a practical way. This is what going to the cross was all about. Jesus went to the cross to demonstrate the love that he has for you. This is why he gave up his life on the cross, was to show you, persuade you, convince you that you are loved. Jesus loves us particularly, and he loves us practically. And when we take those realities in, when we are believing that gospel, that's when this kind of love becomes possible. That's when this kind of love can explode out of our lives and this kind of love can characterize our church. If I want our church to be known by anything in this city, I want us to be known as a community that loves each other very, very well. And I want the love that we have for one another to be the love that is characterized by the gospel of Jesus so that his particular and practical love for us will explode through us and into the city around us. This is what Jesus says in John 13. The world's going to know that you're my, my disciples by how you love each other. This is what's going to make you a counterculture in a city that is filled with people who are living close but disconnected. This is the type of church and community that our city needs. The city of Seattle is densely populated. We are crammed in here. Very small geographical footprint. People everywhere. And there, I'm constantly meeting people and coming across people who are lonely who are anxious, who are depressed, who are discouraged, who are disconnected from relationships that can cause them to flourish. A densely populated city filled with people who are disconnected, you and I can bring a better reality into this city. We can introduce people to a greater reality as we are believing the gospel and as we are loving each other and in loving each other, not in, a, in an exclusive sense to other people, but loving our, each other in an inclusive sense, meaning we're loving each other in such a way that more people are going to be attracted to the Jesus who's loved us particularly and practically. This Jesus who looks at us in John 15 and says, I want you to love one another. Now, Jesus talks about these relationships, and then he moves into this imagery of friendship, and he says, uh, no greater love has anyone than this than the person who would lay down his life for his friends. And so he begins to talk about his friends, and this is where you're really going to find some energy to love well. When you think about what Jesus is getting after here in this passage, when he refers to his friends, check it out, verse 14. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore. Because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I heard from my father. So Jesus here is calling us friends. And in verse 14, he says, if you are my friends, you're going to do what I command you. So once again in verse 14, as we saw last week, Jesus ties love and obedience together. He's always tying love and obedience together. This is why we said last week that to abide in Christ is synonymous for obeying Christ. That abiding and obeying are the same thing. 
And so here he says, if you are my friends, you're going to do what I say. In other words, my love and obedience go hand in hand. Now, the obedience Jesus is talking about isn't the type of obedience that you need to do in order to become Jesus' friends. This isn't an earn his relationship type of thing. The obedience he's talking about here is an obedience that characterizes everyone who's in relationship with him. Everyone who's received his love and responded to it in faith. Those who are my disciples, those who are my people, they they are obedient. Their obedience characterizes them because they're in relationship with me. That's important to get right. Otherwise, our heart's going to twist that reality and we're going to think, okay, I need to obey in order to get Jesus to love me and make him my friend. No, the Christian life is about Jesus loving us, calling us his friends. And then because we are friends with Jesus, we obey him. We do what he says. We follow through with his commands. Now, verse 14 is a little strange because (laughs) that directive only runs in one direction. Meaning you cannot look at Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, if you are my friend, you do what I command, right? That's not gospel. That's not Christianity. That's not what the scriptures teach. And so what Jesus is talking about in verse 14 is a very unique dynamic, and it runs in one direction. He calls us his friends, and because he calls us his friends, we obey him. We, our lives are characterized by obedience. Now, all throughout the scriptures, you're not going to read one instance where a human being refers to God as their friend. It doesn't pop up at all. The only thing you read in the scriptures is God referring to people as his friends, Meaning God calls us his friends. He claims us as his friends. He said this of Abraham in the book of Genesis. He said that of Moses in the book of Exodus. And then here in John chapter 15, Jesus is saying the same thing. I have called you friends. So Jesus pulls us into that friendship. Jesus calls us by this incredibly, using this incredible dynamic relationship. So what does it mean? What does it mean for Jesus to call you and I friend? How how does he relate to us if we are his friends? And how does that relationship lead us to love one another? Well, on one hand, for Jesus to call you his friend means that Jesus entrusts himself to you. Jesus entrusts himself to you. The reason why I use that language is because earlier in John chapter 2, there was this group of people who weren't receiving what Jesus was laying out. They weren't listening to Jesus. They, They weren't read. They did not think that Jesus would be the Messiah, it wasn't time, and so it says in John chapter 2 towards the end of the chapter that Jesus did not entrust himself to them, and so that same language is kind of what's driving what Jesus is talking about here in verse, verse 15 of chapter 15, when he says, I'm entrusting myself to my friends, meaning I'm, I'm pulling you in and making you aware of what the Father is doing. I'm letting you in on what God is up to in the universe, And so Jesus entrusts himself to everyone who is his friends. This makes the church a unique community once again. This makes the church a unique people because we are people whom Jesus has entrusted his purposes to. He's given us his gospel, hasn't he? He's given us his scriptures. He's given us the life of the kingdom that he's energizing by the power of his Holy Spirit Jesus has entrusted himself to us. He's given himself to us in a real, substantial, dynamic way. This means we have an incredible responsibility to the world in which we live. This means that as a church, we have a unique role to fulfill that no other group and no other community can fulfill in this world. Jesus has entrusted himself to us, giving us his gospel, his word, 
his lifestyle, his spirit. He's given himself to us and in calling us friends. And so we want to consider that because when you think about the guys that Jesus is talking to in this passage, he understand that when he starts saying that there's a difference between being a servant and being a friend, and he's saying, I'm no longer calling you a servant, I'm calling you a friend, he's saying, I'm going to start relating to you in a different kind of way. You see, servants obey their masters out of obligation. They obey their masters out of duty. They obey their masters out of ignorance. But he's saying, I'm not going to call you a servant. That's not how you're relating to me. You are my friend. And as friends of Jesus, we have been entrusted with the realities of Jesus, with the beauty of his gospel, with an awareness of what God desires for the world in which we live. Why do we love Seattle? Well, it's because we, love, we believe God loves the people of Seattle. How do we know that? Did we make it up? No, Jesus told us. Jesus said, look, I love people, and I want you to love people. Why do we do anything that we do as a Christian? Well, we do all that we do because Jesus, it's what Jesus told us to do. It's why we gather. It's why we form communities. It's why we share life together. It's why we care for one another. It's why we serve the city in which we live, we do all of this because Jesus has entrusted himself to us. He's brought us into the realities of what God is up to. So when you think about being a friend of Jesus, you need to see yourself as someone to whom Jesus has entrusted himself. And that's different from saying, okay, you're a friend of Jesus because you trust Jesus. That's not what Jesus is saying. You are not a friend of Jesus because you trust Jesus. You are a friend of Jesus because Jesus has entrusted himself to you. And this is important because the guys he's talking to in this passage, once again, just a few chapters after John 15, one guy in particular named Peter is just going to prove himself not to be very friendly to Jesus. He's going to show himself as one who didn't really trust Jesus, one who wasn't really worthy of Jesus' friendship. John chapter 18, there's this moment after Jesus is arrested and he's taken to be tried and crucified. And, and Peter, one of the leaders of the disciples, is standing by himself. And this little servant girl runs up to him and says, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you one of his friends? Don't you know Jesus? And Peter looks at the servant girl and says, no, I, I do not know him. Denies him in that moment. He would do it two more times when two other people would come and ask him the same question. And Peter would not prove himself to be a friend to Jesus. And he would deny Jesus two more times. But then when you get to the end of the gospel in John chapter 21, one of the final scenes in the story of John's account is Jesus coming to Peter, sharing a meal with him, and essentially saying to Peter, look, Peter, you, you didn't prove to be a friend to me, but I'm going to prove to be a friend to you. You see, when Jesus entrusts himself to us, he does so in a way that says he's going to remain faithful to us. That he's a better friend to us than we are to him. That's why our relationship with him isn't dependent upon our ability to trust or our ability to obey. Our relationship with Jesus is dependent upon the fact that he calls us friends, and when he calls us friends, he remains faithful to his friends. Paul would write something very similar in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. If we are faithless, he, Jesus, remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so when Peter was stumbling and bumbling after this moment, Jesus remained faithful to him. Why? Because Jesus befriended him. And if you are in Christ, Jesus has befriended you too. 
And he's going to remain faithful to you all the days of your life. He's going to carry you through this life and into the life that is to come. So you want to rest in that reality. You don't want to get worked up in living out of fear. You want to rest and live a life of love knowing that you are loved so well. Because Jesus entrusts himself to his friends. And he remains faithful to his friends. Another way of saying it is that Jesus is the kind of friend who lets us in. And he never lets us down. Jesus lets us in without letting us down. There is not a burden in your life that Jesus' friendship cannot serve you in carrying. There is not a sin in your life that Jesus' friendship is not willing to forgive. There's not a source of shame in your life that Jesus cannot restore and establish as a sense of honor and dignity once again. Jesus remains faithful to his friends. So we want to rest in this. Jesus would remain so faithful to us that he would literally go to hell and back to maintain friendship with us. You realize that's what he did, right? Jesus went to the cross and he died a unique death unlike any other death that anyone has ever died in this world. A, a death of where he was an atoning sacrifice where he would satisfy God's judgment against our sin and our friendlessness of him. And he would go to the cross and he would take it all. He would experience that judgment. He would take that hit. Why? Because, because he's faithful. Why? Because he wants to maintain friendship. He wants to maintain connection. He wants to maintain community with all of his kids, with all of his people. And so we allow Jesus to, we, we recognize that Jesus has befriended us and we respond accordingly. You know, a lot of people want to change, but a lot of people look at kind of the wrong mechanism for change. It is possible for you to think and maybe even believe in something called divine judgment. You might believe that God's judgment is going to come and believing that might unsettle you. It might frighten you to make some changes in your life. You might make some, some decisions today that you, that you didn't make yesterday because you're thinking about divine judgment. Divine judgment can motivate you to change for a little while. But what can really produce the kind of change that lasts isn't necessarily fear of divine judgment. What produces the kind of change that lasts is embracing the friendship of Jesus. It's letting yourself be loved by the Savior. When you embrace that friendship, when you take in that reality, that's when change that lasts can occur. So you may be afraid of judgment. You might start making some better moral decisions in the future, but that's not going to last. That's anaerobic Christianity, but you want aerobic Christianity. You want to take in the love of Jesus now so that his love may fill you up and flow out of you into the lives of others so that you might become the kind of friend that you've always wanted for yourself, so that you can step into relationships with people where you are letting them in and you're not letting them down, where you are embracing the friendship of Jesus, and that's actually enabling and empowering you to be the best friend possible to those around you. Letting people in without letting them down. Staying committed, staying devoted, staying faithful in your friendships, faithful in your relationships. When you embrace the kind of friendship Jesus is offering, you're enabled to become the kind of friend you've always wanted for yourself. And if we're going to love one another in a particular, practical, possible kind of way, our love has to be 
invigorated with the friendship of Jesus in our lives, of letting this reality of how Jesus relates to us to shape how we relate to one another. If that happens, we are going to make God's grace visible to the city of Seattle. The city of Seattle is going to see that what we believe about Jesus is actually real. It's making an impact. It's making a difference. So that we're loving one another, we're befriending one another in particular, practical, powerful kinds of ways. Let's pray in that direction.